But as I said, we are talking about children this morning, and it is sad to say that we are living at a time when children are being regarded in many places with disdain. There are many countries around the world that see children as really lesser forms of life. They're oftentimes regarded as inconvenient or undesirable or even dispensable. Even in our own country, children bear the brunt of the absolute worst of all of our national sins. This is a very commonly known fact, but since the 1970s, it's estimated that more than 60 million children have been murdered in the womb. And you might ask, well, why? Why have we done that? Well, because many people deem them to be undesirable or inconvenient. But even the children that do survive that and are born, untold millions are consigned to a life of abuse or slavery. It's estimated that 27% of all human trafficking victims are children, forced into a life of either sexual abuse or hard labor. According to one source I read this week, there are an estimated 168 million child laborers around the world that are pressed into virtual slavery oftentimes in hazardous conditions. But even among so-called free nations, and that would be our nation as well, children are treated oftentimes as guinea pigs for every twisted ideology and targeted by governments and corporations for exploitation. And I want you to pay careful attention to this, and I'm sure you've seen this, that this recent transgender movement that's sort of wiping the whole, across the whole entire country right now, it's not being targeted at adults. It's being targeted at children. Even in many schools, children are being encouraged to explore their own sexuality, which is a conversation that is supposed to happen between parents and children, and now it's happening with strangers and educators. And when a child begins to demonstrate even hints of gender confusion, the parents are cut out of the conversation completely, and the child is coerced into pursuing that to its most illogical conclusion. And if you don't believe me, look at all the different court cases that are popping up left and right right now. Parents fighting school boards, fighting even in the courts to get rights back to themselves because their children are being pulled away from them in many different cases. However, there are many parents who are joining this debacle, encouraging their children to explore alternate sexualities and alternate genders. All of this is being done under the guise of care, but it's really nothing more than cruelty. It's no wonder that doctors are treating record numbers of children with depression. I was reading one stat this week that out of all the different uh, reasons for children to go and see the doctor right now, 25% of them are struggling with some sort of depressive disorder at this current time. It's becoming an epidemic in a very real sense. We use that word very flippantly the last couple years. This issue of the abuse of our children is epidemic right now. And the question then is, why such a war on children? Why, Why is the enemy going after children? Well, because Satan hates humanity in general because we bear the image of God. So the enemy hates us. And while they are not sinless, children are innocent in the ways of evil at a young age. They don't know and see what we have seen. They have, in many ways, they've been kept pure. This is why the Apostle Paul gives the illustration in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty: Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. He says, be evil, in, in evil be babies. So in your, the acts of evil, be children in how you regard evil. But in your thinking, be mature. 
He connects purity in thought and purity in action with childhood and and babies. Children embody a a natural curiosity, a, a trusting dependence, a precious purity. Furthermore, the Bible extols the blessing of children. Psalm 127 very famously says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children are not a curse or an inconvenience or distractions away from our ambitions. No, children are blessings from God. And so we are to conform our thinking about children to that of the Lord. And so the question is, well, how does God see children? And I think this morning's message is going to be something that brings us closer to his heart on the matter. So turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. If there were to be sort of a thematic contour to Matthew chapter 19, it could trace the, we could trace the gamut of this through human family. And we talk about individual relationships and human relationships. We see the marriage relationship in verses 3 through 9. We talk about singleness and how that fits into everything in verses 10 through 12. And now we're going to encounter children. Really, they are the natural product, byproduct, and outcome of marriage But beyond the way that Matthew really uh, constructs the content of his gospel, we see a a grander narrative playing out here. Jesus, at this point in Matthew's gospel, is only a few weeks away from traveling to Jerusalem, where he's going to suffer persecution, death and crucifixion, uh, and resurrection afterwards. So the tension here from his travels to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to beyond It's mounting daily and it's getting closer and closer as he gets closer himself to the cross. The disciples no doubt feel the tension of this. They they see the different interactions with the Pharisees and the opponents on the rise. The tension is mounting day after day, which is, I believe, why they respond so seriously when they perceive a a hindrance to the mission of Jesus. And as we're going to quickly see, Jesus has very different priorities from those of the disciples. And so Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now at first glance, it seems like a, only a minor exchange here, but there's actually more going on than you might or we might realize At some point after Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, we begin to see parents that are bringing their children to Jesus. Now, they had likely been doing this all along. This is not an uncommon occurrence for people to bring their kids or even ask Jesus to come and minister to their children. We see many times when parents are asking the Lord to come and heal their children. There are other times when Jesus heals their children without them even asking for him to do anything. But they're bringing their children to him and I think more so at this point. The, the number of visitations of children to Jesus is increasing. Well, why? Well, according to custom, parents, Jewish parents, were bringing, they were accustomed to doing this, to bringing their children to the temple right around the time of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And they would do this because, according to custom, 
uh, the scribes would lay hands on the children and they would pray for them and ask for the Lord's blessing on the children. Now, they knew that the prayer of the scribe was not going to guarantee God's blessing, but everybody in those days would have valued the prayers of a righteous man. And so the hope is that by their earnest prayers, God would, in fact, bless their children. Now, if this is taking place during Yom Kippur, then the events that are happening here might be as far out as five to six months away from Jesus going to the cross, but we don't have any reason to indicate that this wasn't later. I mean, this very well could have been a later time in the spring before he goes to the cross several weeks away. Again, the timeline is not as definitive, but you can understand where this zealous uh, activity might be increasing if it's coming from the season of Yom Kippur. But the point would have been simply this. It would not have been odd for parents to bring their kids to a rabbi, and in this case to Jesus, to receive a blessing. And for those who believe Jesus to be the Messiah, there would have been no, no one better than to bless your children if you could bring your child to the Messiah. And so the text says that some children were being brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them in, and pray. Well, how old were these children? That's another question. Well, the Greek word that's used here is uh, pedia. It's a general term for young children, perhaps even toddlers. Uh, in Luke's gospel of the same event, there are three different synoptic events here. Uh, he refers to these children that were being brought to Jesus as babies. These are babies or perhaps even toddlers, young, young children. So these are small Helpless children that are being brought to Jesus so that he might pray for them and bless them. Well, How do we know that that's what they're asking for, for a blessing? Well, the laying on of hands is a telltale sign. In fact, that was a standard practice in Israel. If you remember back in your minds to Genesis 48, when Jacob was intending to bless Joseph's sons, he did so by placing his hands on on their heads and praying for them. And you remember the, the situation where Joseph believed that, that the blessing was being done incorrectly, so he tries to switch his dad's hands, and there's a whole thing with that. But the idea here is this was a very common practice. Even Jesus himself, when he was very young, was the recipient of such blessing. In Luke 2.28, when the elderly uh, Simeon held the baby Jesus in his arms and prayed a blessing over him. So many families would have wanted the Lord to bless their children, and so they brought their little ones to him in droves. But the disciples weren't having it. It says in verse 13, they rebuked them. They rebuked them. Why? Again, they would have understood the custom. They would have seen and known what this is all about. But here's the thing. They deemed it to be unimportant in light of the mission. That's how they would have had to have seen it, because even though this isn't ultimately about custom, this is about parents bringing their kids to Jesus, and Matthew doesn't record it here, but Mark's account says that when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was furious. He got angry when the disciples were keeping these kids away from him. I want you to think about this with me. The disciples keeping the children away and Jesus getting angry. Why would he have been so angry, and what would have been the issue here? Remember here that God created humanity, and he, he loves his creation. He saw the creation, he, he deemed it to be very good. But it was the advent of sin that breaks the relationship. And so while the Lord still loves his people, he hates our sin. And many people who approached Jesus didn't come to be healed of their sinfulness, but instead they came to argue and fight with him and accuse him. 
And so Jesus' ministry was, was marked by all these people attacking him constantly and bringing the worst of their sinfulness to him, again, not to be forgiven and healed, but to be thrown in his face. Think about the Pharisees, thinking about all the hard-hearted Israelites. Think of how many times Jesus would have been saddened and heartbroken because the lost sheep of the house of Israel don't want him. They only want to demonstrate and flaunt their sinfulness. And then, out of all of that, in the midst of dealing with the hard-hearted Pharisees just a few minutes before, now you see a crowd of people that are coming to you with their children. Their children. He would have been overjoyed to see these kids. Not only because they were uh, pure, but because, and we understand that they don't, they're not without sin nature. I want to be very clear about that. But they're innocent in the ways of evil. In Scripture, that's how Scripture regards young children. If you remember back to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we know that judgment comes according to the sinful acts that we have done. We die because of the sins that we commit. Whether it's sins of, of omission, commission, whether it's hands that we commit the sin or thoughts in our mind or words that we say, you're, you're guilty before God because of what you do and what you believe and what you profess and what you say that is sinful and wrong. But what about those, according to Deuteronomy 139, who have no knowledge of good and evil? Or of those in the prophecy of Jonah who don't know their right hand from their left hand? Again, these are not morally perfect. Our children are not morally perfect when they're born. They are born in sin. We are all born in sin. Psalm 51, 5. However, born without even the slightest knowledge of what sin is or any cognitive ability to rebel. Such innocence would have been refreshing to Jesus, who is himself on a pilgrimage along the path of this sin-sick world. Everywhere he went, I mean, the Bible calls him a man of sorrows. Why? Why was he a man of sorrows? Because all he ever ran into was sinners. Again, to reiterate one more time, children are born with a sin nature because of the fall. That's Romans 5.12. But pre-born children, children in the womb, infants, toddlers, and I would even add to that those of severely diminished mental capacity are not guilty of sinful rebellion against God because they don't understand right from wrong, good from evil, and they're completely unaware when they do commit something wrong. John MacArthur in one of his books writes this, children are incapable of discerning right from wrong, sin from righteousness, evil from goodness. Scripture is very clear on this. Little children have no record of unbelief or evil works, and therefore there is no basis for their deserving an eternity apart from God. What does Jesus say again here? For verse 14, he tells the disciples, he gets angry with the disciples, he says, let the children alone. Don't antagonize them, don't keep them away, don't harass the parents. Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. Then what does he say? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now before we put the cart before the horse here, let's examine the words of Jesus. We noted that Jesus, again, was angry when the disciples tried to stop the children from coming to him. He tells them instead, let the children alone, do not hinder them from coming to me. Mark records something similar. He says in Mark's gospel, permit them to come to me. 
He's saying, don't get in their way. Don't cause them to stumble to get to me. And the question is, well, why is he so emphatic about this? Why is he so indignant about them being stopped from getting to him? I think the next phrase helps us. He says, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What does he mean here? Well, in one sense, children are a model of trust and dependence. And we saw this back in Matthew 18, didn't we? Actually, just flip over one page or so in your Bible and you'll see it. Matthew 18. We sort of dipped our toe in the water when we covered these verses, and I, I want to go back to them. The disciples are they're bickering over which one of them is the greatest, right? And what does Jesus do? Matthew 18 At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? And what does he do here? Look at verse 2. He called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives... One such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned to the depths of the sea. He tells the disciples that unless they become like little children, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's essentially telling them children are not prideful and boastful like you guys are being. They're not stiff-necked. They're not overconfident. Kids aren't like that. They might, when they're five, act sort of bravado and brag about how good they are at how they can color or how they can put Legos together. That's very different, right? That's just them trying to make their parents proud and getting excited about what they're doing. Children don't have those sort of vile tendencies that we do. They don't think much of themselves. Ultimately, they're, they're helpless and they're trusting and they're dependent. They believe you when you say something to them. That's why I I think it's very important that we don't get into a a habit of of lying to our children. And when I say lying, I mean indulging in certain fantasies. And I'm not going to get into all of that because I don't want to ruin anyone's holidays here. (laughs) But I'm serious about it. It's important that that we garner trust from our kids. It's really important. because, And this is a side note here, but... If you practice not telling your kids the truth in childhood and then at some point in time talk to them about a God who they've never seen who saved them long ago from sins that they can't materialize in their mind and you say that you give them the the gospel, if you've been in the habit of not telling them the truth, what are they going to believe when you go to tell them about an eternal truth that's hard for them to see? But if if you garner trust with them, if you never lie to them and don't placate other things... If you're honest with your kids, and then you say, by the way, let me tell you about this really difficult truth. They might stumble over the truth themselves by faith, but at least they won't stumble over you. So consider that seriously, beloved parents, of how we engage with our children. But children are trusting, aren't they? They're dependent. And that's how we are supposed to be. In fact, 1 Peter 2.2 tells believers, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Peter says to believers, you need to be like little kids. You need to be like children with how you come to me, to the Lord. And so children are examples of dependence on the Lord. 
In fact, if you were to read Luke's account of the very same passage that we're reading in Matthew 19, Luke records this, and Matthew does not record this, but Luke says that Jesus says this right afterwards. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. We must receive the gospel and the kingdom like children. Those who are not prideful, those who are dependent on God, those who are trusting in God, who believe earnestly, that's how we are to come to the Lord. Believers are likened, we are likened to God's own children, his little ones, who come to him helplessly and by faith and in full dependence. In fact, if you come to the Lord with anything in your hands and say, here's what I'm going to go and do, it demonstrates that we do not actually have faith in him at all. What about the actual children themselves, however? Because that's, there's, a, there's a textual connection here, isn't there? Jesus keeps on saying, unless you come to me like a child, like a child, what about children themselves? Obviously, we know that children are simply small versions of adults that they're going to become, right? All children who survive into adulthood, that's where they become. They, at some point, children must grow up and square with God with regards to their sin and with regards to their eternal future. Children who grow up and, and hear the gospel and understand the gospel, you have to obey the demands of the gospel. We preach the gospel to all people, all people everywhere. And the Bible commands that all people everywhere are commanded to repent of their sins, to turn away from their sins, to hate their sins, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But the question then persists. What about those who never get the chance to do that? What happens when a child dies in infancy or dies in the womb? Where do they go? Now, I know that nobody here today wants to even think about that happening. But the fact is, it's a very real part of life. And if we don't answer these kinds of questions from the scriptures, then we're missing the mark here. The very first funeral I ever did was for a three-month-old child. Talk about baptism by fire into ministry. It was right around Christmas. I think it was the second year I was in ministry. The situation was this. A mother was napping. She was sitting down, holding the child in her arms. The baby took a nap. She took a nap. And when she woke up, the baby was gone. The doctors deemed it sudden infant death syndrome. The mom did nothing wrong. The baby just died. When I arrived at the house, my job was to try to comfort them and provide answers from God's word. And so having studied it out, this is how I reasoned. This is what I told them in a manner of sense. Number one, all humanity has fallen in sin. Every man, every woman, every child, all of us are born with a sin nature. And the wages of that sin is death, Romans 6.23. And the curse of the fall is why, the fall is why we have evil and war and sickness and famine and violence and hunger and death. All of this, all of this, including death, is because of the fall. It affects everyone and everything. And so the curse of the fall is why a three-month-old baby dies. But then number two, we know that even though a baby isn't born perfect, we're all born with a sin nature, little children are innocent of evil. There's no way a little three-month-old baby even has a, a concept for what good and evil even is. They don't know anything. All they know is that they want mom. That's it. 
They don't know right from wrong. They can't choose sin and rebel. They can't do anything. They don't don't know what it is to trust and believe in Jesus. Therefore, number three, God in his loving kindness makes a sovereign provision according to his will to save eternally every child who is unable to trust in Jesus Christ. This becomes part of his sovereign plan. They are added into his plan of redemption. God gently places all of these children into the wounded hands of Christ and he gives his life for them. I told this mother, your baby is safe in heaven right now. And then I told her that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, not only will you be given eternal life and spend eternity with God, but then you will also see your daughter again when you arrive. Because again, salvation is all of God's grace. Now I've received some pushback for this. Some have alleged that this belief is based on mere sentimentality or emotionalism rather than scripture. But I would ask the question and pose the question, how then are we to understand Matthew 18.3 and Matthew 19.14? How then do we understand this? After all, Jesus' comparison of believers entering into heaven with childlike faith only works if children, and I'm talking about infants here, small children who can't believe, if children are saved as well. How does the analogy work if one is not true? The analogy will fail. Let me argue this from a different perspective. Let me do it from the opposite way of something we know is not true. Imagine if he said this, unless you have the faith of a mass murderer, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If that were the the case, that analogy completely fails, right? Because nobody would have the faith of a mass murderer, an unrepentant mass murderer, and go to heaven. There has to be some kind of an equivalent that our faith must be like in order to go to heaven. Again, children who die innocent do go to heaven. In fact, beloved, this has been the long-standing belief of the majority of Reformed believers from John Calvin to John Piper. Many, many believers have, have taught this and understood this from Scripture and perpetuated this. Charles Spurgeon has said this, We hold that all infants who die are elect of God and are therefore saved. Again, it's not their age that saves them. It is God's grace that saves them. God's grace, he predestines those infants to eternal life. Again, he makes them. He knows what's going to happen to them, right? Not only does he know what's going to happen, he purposes according to his sovereign will that he will bring certain children back home to himself before they can believe in him. Spurgeon continues, he says this, I believe that the Lord Jesus who said, of such is the kingdom of heaven, quoting this verse, doth daily and constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. God saves these little ones. But I want to take you to another place in scripture. Turn over in your copy of the Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is very interesting. 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is where David, King David, is confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba. Remember here, he commits adultery with this woman, and then because he wants to cover up the pregnancy, he has her husband killed, and now he believes he can get away with murder, 
And now this new child that's going to be born to him, he can now claim as his own. But David's sin is exposed. He does repent. You can read that in Psalm 32, Psalm 51. He pours out his heart to God. He's totally destroyed by his own sin. He repents. We believe he's forgiven. However, this sin is not without consequences. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in the end, or the second half of verse 15. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I want you to notice a few things here. When David's baby falls sick, He flies into a state of worry and despair, doesn't he? I mean, he acts the way that any of us would have acted. Or maybe if this has been your experience, I don't know all of you and your experience, maybe this has been what you have done. But he begs and he pleads for God to spare the child. But then once the child passes away, how does David respond? His servants are worried about him. They think that once the baby goes, he's going to take his own life or harm himself. But once he knows the child is gone, he gets up, he washes himself, he cleans himself up, he anoints himself with oil, he changes his clothes, he goes to the house of God to worship. He worships God. And then he eats dinner. Why? Well, because he has confidence that he knows where the child is. He's home in heaven with God. And knowing that David belongs to God. He himself is a believer, even though he has sinned egregiously. He still knows he belongs to God. He knows that when he's never going to see the child on earth again, the child's never going to come back to him on earth. But he says that he comforts himself with the fact that one day he knows that he is going to go and see the child again. How is that going to happen? He's going to see the child in heaven. Even David has a foundational understanding of the fact that God does this. Let the children alone. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. 
One of the best books I've ever read on this is a book by John MacArthur, Safe in the Harms of God. If you haven't read this and you're interested, please grab this book. This is very, very helpful. It lists more scripture, more evidences of why this is a true doctrine. But again, this has been the the position held from Calvin and the Reformers all the way through uh, John Piper, John MacArthur, Charles Spurgeon. And again, not that name dropping is going to prove anything, but... In terms of influence and belief, this is what the church has believed, again, from the scriptures. And I believe it's correct. But what about, again, children to whom God grants life and growth? What about children who do not pass away at a young age? And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to just examine very briefly four responsibilities that Christian parents have to their children. What does God require When the Lord says, do not hinder them and let them come to me, what does God require of us as stewards over our children, Christian parents? Number one, God requires parents to teach their children. God requires Christian parents to teach their children. All of Proverbs, and we looked at one of the Proverbs even this morning, chapter 21, all of Proverbs is full of exhortations to teach and train children. Again, most famous, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way and he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a, a dyed-in-the-wool guarantee that if you do right by your kids, they will always respond, but as a general maxim, if you train your children up well when they're younger, there, there is a trajectory that you set their life on. And what is it that we are to teach them? Certainly, we're trying to teach our kids how to become adults someday, how to work hard, how to save money, how to live morally, how to contribute to society, how to care for their family someday. Those are all important things. But the, the Bible actually has a greater responsibility for us as parents of children. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but here comes the command, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our responsibility, your responsibility, is to teach your children about God, about the things of God, sin, repentance, forgiveness, Christ, salvation, eternal life. You are to teach them the Word of God. Pray with them, guide them, counsel them, have conversations with them. And I would even just give you just a personal pastoral encouragement. Parents, when, they're, when your kids get to a certain age, don't just have the talk with them. Have many talks with them. Practice a, a regular dialogue of discussing as their maturity and interest increases. Invest yourselves in your children. You see this clear in Scripture, that we are to come alongside them. Deuteronomy 6, for example, paints this beautiful picture of a faithful family that fills their home with the things of God, to the point where they're writing verses on their doorposts and they're reciting and filling their home with the things of God. Again, it's not just that you spend a little bit of time a couple times a week or even once a day talking about the things of God, but rather it is permeating your entire life all the time. Ultimately, it is your responsibility to lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's great that we want to do evangelism out there. It's great that we want to do discipleship. Those are all wonderful things. But the first primary responsibility of every single Christian parent is to work hard to lead their children to the Lord. That's number one. Number two, it is also our responsibility to discipline our children. To discipline our children. 
I fear that too many parents think it's their job to be their kid's best friend. Now, I think that 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 can come in time. You can be their buddy when they're grown, gone, and godly. That's the time to be their best friend. But when they're younger, and again, over and over, Scripture commands parents to discipline and correct their children and not to neglect doing it. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod, and that's a symbol for discipline, by the way, he who spares his rod hates his son. If you don't discipline your kids, it's because you hate them, according to Scripture. Now you say, well, I don't hate my kids, but if you don't discipline and you watch them grow up, what have you done to them? They become these rebellious, anarchistic, self-gratifying people who are, they become wretches in time. And what is the, the general diagnosis of what's going on in this world right now? Children, I mean, read Romans 1. Romans 1 comes, the natural progression of, of children who disobey their parents and disobey authority and, and invent ways of evil. The natural progression you can trace back is because they were never disciplined as kids. You can read Proverbs 23, 13, Proverbs 29, 17, over and over and over again. We are called and commanded to discipline our children. But why? Why do we do that? Why do we discipline our kids? Because that's not fun, is it? That's a, that's a, as a parent, that's one of the hardest things in the world, to discipline and correct your kids. Well, because discipline corrects error. It corrects error. It mitigates sin. You're able to stop sin patterns at an early age. It also reinforces righteousness. In fact, Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines us as children. Why, he says, for our own good that we may share in his holiness. Now, I want to be very clear. Abuse is not discipline. And any time you harm a child, any time you harm a child, you are in sin. And you're actually in the risk of incurring the Lord's judgment from Matthew 18, verse 6. That includes, I believe, physical harm. There's a huge difference. I don't want to delineate this too far here, but there's a massive difference between a, a corrective, a short corrective measure and wounding and hurting your children and harming your children. Physical harm. That includes, I think, also screaming in their face. Withholding needed help. Denying your kids basic necessities in order to teach them a lesson. Again, pulling away TV and video games, that's not abuse. That's actually probably really wise. But you know what I'm talking about when I talk about withholding things that are needed from them. Frustrating them to anger. I've seen that. And to my shame, when I've been in sin, I have done that. Frustrated my children to anger. But none of those things are of the Lord and must be repented of. No, parents are not to harm or frustrate or exacerbate their children but discipline them in love for their good and for God's glory, which leads us to number three. Number three, responsibility of parents to children. We are called to love our children. Love our children. Again, Proverbs 3.12, Proverbs 13.24, all connect love with discipline. They connect the two. But there's more than that. We're, we're called to treat our children, I believe, with tender affection. Tender affection. We're called to to care for them, to nurture them, to give to them. Because the core of love is giving, is it not? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. 
there's a really a definition, I believe, of the perpetual act of self-giving. That's what love is. This includes providing for their needs, which is why we read in places like 1 Timothy 5.8 that fathers are instructed to provide for their own households. That's a loving thing. 2 Corinthians 12.14, similarly, to save up for our children, to provide for them financially. It's not our kids' responsibility to go and provide for us. It's our responsibility to go and provide for them. Again, Titus 2.4, younger women who become moms are instructed to be discipled by older women so they can love their husbands and then love their what? Their children. So women are commanded to be instructed on how to love their children. So loving our kids is a command. Now, I know that there's a trend, and it's, it's trendy and humorous and fun to sort of sarcastically lament having children. All oh, my children are driving me crazy. And they'll, they'll make all kinds of, mommy needs a vacation, mommy needs a break. And I get it. I understand that there's a humorous element to being a parent. And that's fine. But I think we are not to forget that our responsibility is to love our children. It's not our burden, is it? It's heavy. It's a, it's a weight of responsibility. But children are not our burden. They're a greatest blessing. They're a divine responsibility. All joking aside, Christians are to be the most loving parents in the world. We are to set the bar high for what it means to love our kids. Because again, we, out of all people on the planet, understand what it means to have a father who loves us as his children so much he would send his son to die for us. If anyone should understand the love of a parent, it should be us. And when we see God's tender love and affection and care and mercy and kindness for us as children, that should demonstrate to us how to love our kids. We shouldn't be treating our children any worse than our father treats us. So parents, love your children. And then finally, number four, parents are called to protect our children. We are to be their protector. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, this, this world, this country is after our kids That's not a scare tactic. I'm not trying to shock you with that. It is, I believe, a provable fact right now. Children are being targeted through media, through ads, through propaganda, through schools, through institutions. Just just go on online even. Go to even kids' TV shows, kids' movies. You watch, and I pay attention to this stuff. I watch the trajectory of kids' TV shows and kids' movies from even when I was a kid in the 80s. Even 40 years later to now, you see the trajectory. We no longer have loving and responsible parents who are the heroes of these shows. It's always the dog, isn't it? Or it's someone else. Children are always being cared for by somebody else and not their parents. They're being pulled away, even in entertainment. And they're becoming self-empowered and self-identifying. There's a reason they're trying to get kids away from the family unit and dependent on someone else, usually the state. And so there is a war on kids. It's documented. There's books even coming out now. We are our children's first line of defense to protect them from the world, to protect them from the enemy, and even to protect them from themselves. Your kids don't know best for themselves. You do. You know what's best for them. 
All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God declares justice and protection for the weak and for the vulnerable, especially for widows and orphaned children. God cares about children. The nursemaids in Israel did this when Pharaoh wanted to wipe out all the infants. Remember that? And what did they do? They rebelled and they protected these kids. We see this when the Israelites ventured out into the cities of the Transjordan, building fortifications for the safety. According to Numbers 32, verse 17, they built fortifications for the sake of their little ones. They built cities to protect their kids. Even the pilgrims, when they came over to America, one of the the main reasons they wanted to get away from the Netherlands was to provide a future for their kids. They died on the shores of Massachusetts to, to protect their kids and give them a future. We read Matthew 18. We see that we are charged with protecting little ones from stumbling into sin and wickedness. We are warned, don't cause little ones to stumble. Now there's a dual application here. He's also talking about Christian believers, not causing Christian believers to stumble. But he says this when he's holding a small child in his lap. And he says, anyone who caused one of these little ones to stumble, it's better for you to drown and have a millstone tied around your neck. We are called, beloved, to protect children. Our children and all children. That is a Christian responsibility. They are truly the least of all, the most vulnerable and the most in need of protection. Guarding our children is a righteous responsibility. It truly is. How does Jesus finish up his visit with all these families and all these little kids? Verse 15, after laying his hands on them, so he didn't withhold, he did. He laid his hands on them. It says he departed from there. And we know that from there, he's going to be marching his way eventually to Jerusalem where he is going to go to the cross. And why is he going to go to the cross? What is the purpose? Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom, to go and die, and his blood is going to be shed and pay for the sins of those who he has called to himself. He dies as a payment for sin. And we know that the gospel is this, that all who would repent and trust in him would be saved and have eternal life. Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all who know our sins, we know what we've done. And if you're here today and you have never done this, if you understand that you have sinned against God, if you realize that there is no way for you to get to heaven on your own merits, and that's true, by the way, all of us are commanded to repent and turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the beauty of this text. We're thankful, Lord, that we get to see children in the, the way that you do, that you have a special love for them, that you desire to protect them and shield them from wickedness. Lord, that you love them and you you care for them. You care for orphan children. You care for infants. And Lord, even we think about the voices of those who've been martyred, those young ones who are under the throne of heaven that you care for. Lord, that we know that you've taken countless millions and beyond to yourself. And we trust in your character, your righteous judgment, that you protect and you care for those who are the least of all of us. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your gracious provision. Lord, it is by your sovereign grace that you save anyone. 
including us. You are good, Lord, and you are the one who grants salvation. Lord, I pray you would help us to love our children even more today than we even did yesterday. And Lord, when we sin against our kids, that we would repent first to you because you are the, always the first one wronged. But Lord, that we would get right and repent and confess even to our kids when we sin against them. Lord, help us to, to know and to learn and grow in our understanding of what it means to care for these kids. We pray for all these things, Lord, and we ask for your mercy and for your kindness and your blessing on us. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.